in politics, unfortunately, complexity and subtlety are always bulldozed by simplicity and bluntness. And that is a real problem. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, I really enjoyed our whole series on romanticism, all of those discussions we had about romanticism around the Valentine's Day holiday. Very enjoyable, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it gave me a chance to do some of the stuff that I used to love doing in the classroom on one of my favorite subjects, the history of ideas and particularly the history of love. Yeah, and to delve deep into a word like romanticism and show all of the cultural implications and something that was a topic that was more or less uplifting to me. Um, there is a dark side to romanticism. We talked about that. But on the main, I found it very enlightening and somewhat uplifting to delve deeply into that word, romanticism, and to talk about those cultural implications. But today, I want to talk about something else that almost only has a dark side. I hate to put everybody in such a bad mood. But do you know what my front runner for word of the year, or we'll just call it word of the new year so far <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the word lies. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's all kinds of new synonyms for it that we have alternative facts. And um, I think fake news works in there. So these are awful things to be contemplating. And yet they're so pervasive in the media. And culturally, I think everybody is hyper aware of this. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this word lies. Right. Put it in plural, you know, I'm not even talking about tell a lie. I'm just saying the word lies. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it, and we have a lot of other words that we use to express the same thing. And some of this plays into how the media tells the story. Um, what are some of the words that commonly get used instead of the word lie? Well, a lot of the journalists have decided that uh, lie is too strong a term, so they use other synonyms. Untruth is a pretty popular one. Mm -hmm. uh, falsehood comes pretty close to being a lie. Um, fabrication. Um, the New York Times has taken an interesting step of uh, reporting, for instance, that Donald Trump repeats lies that he has heard without presuming to know whether he himself is lying, which is a very fine shading. Mm -hmm. And in our personal lives, we have all kinds of other words that we use. Well, that's inaccurate. Uh, you're being deceptive. That's a fib. Yeah, it's a fib. <laughs> that's a whopper. Uh, tall tales. Yeah. It's almost like and we talked about uh, how the Eskimo words for snow, we debunked that myth. But uh, if you want to just go with it for a minute, you could say, well, we have a million words for lie. So it must be really important to us. Right. Uh. But this idea you mentioned Trump and this idea of presidential lies in particular, uh, well, he's the first president to ever tell a lie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Whoa, that's a softball, bitch. <laughs> no. <laughs> there have been some studies in which they asked people to really track and note every time they told a lie. And people lie a lot, even if it's, yeah, that doesn't make you look too fat. Mm-hmm. Or I'll be there in just a minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that kind of thing. Um, but presidents probably have to lie more than other people. And uh, the interesting thing about this from the presidential history point of view, of course, is that we have one president who got a reputation for never telling a lie. And that was our first one, George Washington. And that, however, was probably in itself a lie because it comes from a life of Washington by Mason Locke Weems, usually referred to as Parson Weems published in 1809, and he gathered up all kinds of popular lore about George Washington, and particularly his childhood. The one about uh, his throwing the silver dollar across the Potomac is one that a lot of people used to know. I don't know if anybody even knows what a silver dollar is anymore. But um, the most famous one was the story, and I I thought I'd just uh, take it as it appears in his book, and because uh, everybody refers to this, but you don't actually hear the story very often. And he reported it as being told to him by a woman who said that she had heard this. So it's not even Weems that's making up the story. When George was about six years old, he was made the wealthy master of a hatchet of which, like most little boys, he was immoderately fond, and was constantly going about chopping everything that came in his way. One day in the garden, where he often amused himself hacking his mother's pea sticks, he unluckily tried the edge of his hatchet on the body of a beautiful young English cherry tree, which he barked so terribly that I don't believe the tree ever got the better of it. The next morning, the old gentleman, finding out what had befallen his tree, which, by the by, was a great favorite, came into the house and with much warmth asked for the mischievous author, declaring at the same time that he would not have taken five guineas for his tree. Nobody could tell him anything about it. Presently, George and his hatchet made their appearance. George, said his father, do you know who killed that beautiful little cherry tree yonder in the garden? This was a tough question, and George staggered under it for a moment, but quickly recovered himself, and looking at his father with the sweet face of youth, brightened with the inexpressible charm of all-conquering truth, he bravely cried out, I can't tell a lie, Pa. You know I can't tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Run to my arms, you dearest boy, cried his father in transports. Run to my arms. Glad am I, George, that you killed my tree, for you have paid me for it a thousandfold. Such an act of heroism in my son is more worth than a thousand trees, though blossomed with silver and their fruits of purest gold. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> if you believe that. <laughs> I've got the Brooklyn Bridge right here for you. Well, I didn't realize that that was such a strong parable in favor of telling the truth will get you reward. But I'm not buying that so much. And I think a lot of subsequent presidents have not bought that story too much. Yeah. When I was in high school, I first became aware of the problem of presidential lies when uh, Dwight Eisenhower tried to cover up the U-2 spy plane incident. Francis Gary Powers had been the pilot one of several who was sent to fly over the Soviet Union and take pictures from this very high-altitude airplane. 
and um, it was discovered and shot down by the Russians. And uh, Eisenhower himself didn't lie exactly. He allowed the Secretary of State, Alan Dulles, to deny that he had been on a spy mission. Uh, Powers managed to bail out. And even though he had a poison that he was supposed to take if he was captured, he didn't do it. Um, so uh, Dulles uh, claimed that this had been uh, all a, a mistake and that no, there was no spying involved and so on. And um, ultimately... Eisenhower had to admit the truth, but he tried as long as he could to keep it covered up. And that was um, one of those moments in the Cold War that was pretty scary. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, um, not the only time that Khrushchev behaved in a less threatening fashion than he might have. He's not exactly crazy. He, he sort of was like Nixon. <laughs> in, uh, in public, he liked to seem like he was totally out of control and might do anything at any moment. But when he got into a really tight place, especially in the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, he would be a good deal more cautious than you might have thought. That reminds me, I just saw a cartoon yesterday saying that the independent nation of Cuba has just discovered and is terrified by the fact that it's only 90 miles from a country controlled by Russia. <laughs> yeah. Um, can I inject something here from around the same time? Uh, you're talking about the Gary Powers incident around 1960. Right. May 1st, 1960. May 1st, 1960. And that's the first one that you recall in an instance of presidential lying. And I want to intertwine this and take a slight detour for a moment and talk about conspiracy as well, because I think there's an element of people wanting to not actually believe the truth necessarily, or at least believe the story that's being reported. Um, if you take other cases like that around that time, the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, the Kennedy assassination, and so on, the Bay of Pigs I think these are all instances where people will deny the report that they hear and the official story, but they'll develop conspiracies in order to create often other lies. Or It's just they want to hear a story that makes sense to them. And I think the receiver's mind, they're going to construct a reality that tries to make sense of a complicated situation that they cannot possibly ever know all of the truth about it just cannot be discovered at least by them so uh what do you say about that element to all of this well i think people tend to want to believe what agrees with their biases already that's being discussed a lot during a political campaign it was very clear and it's been very disheartening to find that sociologists uh, studying this have found that if people are given the facts in a very clear way to go against what their current beliefs hold, it's more likely to reinforce them in their original beliefs and want to believe what is actually a lie than to change their minds and accept the new information they've been given. The confrontation seems to be, um, in most cases, to stiffen people's objections more than to weaken them. Although I did hear a very interesting interview on NPR recently where a young woman and her father were arguing over political issues and they were very, very different from each other. And she sat down and 
explain to him in detail the evidence for global warming as a human-made disaster. And he actually said, okay, now you never explained that to me before. Mm -hmm. I understand now. <laughs> and that maybe it was because it was his daughter, but she had never bothered before to really go into it. They had just been butting heads all this time. Yeah, I think there is a tendency to say, well, look, it's all out there. If you just read the information that I have, it's in plain view, and you're just being bullheaded and stubborn, not believing all the information that you are obviously seeing. The truth is, not everybody is seeing all of that information. Well, and they're seeing different things. I mean, go read it on Breitbart. That's where you get the facts, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or Fox News or, or whatever it is that uh, you're trying to argue with somebody about. Yeah. Yeah. Or on the other side, Democratic Underground or Daily Coast or whatever. If you're only getting your news sourced from uh, one area, you're blinding yourself to what's going on. And, you know, I think that other element, too, of it was his daughter and this human interaction and. Well, I'll believe you, but I won't believe all of that that I'm reading. Yeah, I think sometimes articles about sociological studies like that tend to exaggerate. They'll say, you know, 52% of men thought this, 48% of women did. And then, you know, the, the story will be reported as men believe this, women believe that, mm -hmm. uh, which is a wild abuse of statistics, of course. But, um, yeah, so I think that it is possible for people's minds to change. Mm -hmm. And there are well-documented cases of that. And democracy would be in dire straits if that weren't possible. But it's harder than we may have thought. Mm -hmm. But this idea of your uh, biases being hardened when you hear the opposite is a well-studied phenomenon. Yeah. As is the phenomenon that uh, when you hear a lie... Or when you hear any statement that's put out as a statement of fact, your first inclination is to accept it as a statement of fact and then to run it through your filters and say, oh, wait a minute, that, can that be true? Um, I'm not sure. But the fact remains that that statement of fact was put out there and in a sense polluted what your knowledge base is. Uh, let's talk about some more presidential lies, because I think we need to go over this some more and really put to rest that when we hear a president lie, this is not the first time that this has happened in history or anything of the like. No. Well, here's one that's got a couple of layers to it that came up during the last campaign. And uh, it's about one of our most recent politicians uh, referring to one of our older politicians. Of course, Abraham Lincoln was known as Honest Abe, right? But he was a canny politician. And in uh, a second presidential debate that uh, Hillary Clinton had with Donald Trump, uh, she was asked about a statement she'd made earlier about the necessity for politicians to sometimes be two-faced. And she argued in response to that that sometimes a certain amount of deception is necessary. And she cited Abraham Lincoln as an example. And she's referring to the 2012 Steven Spielberg movie, Lincoln. As I recall, that was something I said about Abraham Lincoln after having seen the wonderful Steven Spielberg movie called Lincoln. It was a master class watching President Lincoln get the Congress to approve the 13th Amendment. It was principled and it was strategic. 
And I was making the point that it is hard sometimes to get the Congress to do what you want to do and that you have to keep working at it. And yes, President Lincoln was trying to convince some people. He used some arguments. Convincing other people, he used other arguments. That was a great, I thought, a great display of presidential leadership. Now, that was not as eloquent a reply as she might have made. Mm-hmm. And she was not thinking about, now, how is this going to sound? <laughs> 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 On the other hand, it sounds like she's dithering around about whether it's all right to lie. Yeah. She's referring back to a 2013 address to the National Multi-Housing Council, which is kind of long, but I think it's worth reading to get into her thinking. Because I think she's right that this represents something that's a necessary function of government. You just have to sort of figure out how to, getting back to that word, balance, how to balance the public and the private efforts that are necessary to be successful politically. And that's not just a comment about today. That, I think, has probably been true for all of our history. And if you saw the Spielberg movie Lincoln and how he was maneuvering and working to get the 13th Amendment passed, and he called one of my favorite predecessors, Secretary Seward, who had been the governor and senator from New York, ran against Lincoln for president, and he told Seward, I need your help to get this done. And Seward called some of his lobbyist friends who knew how to make a deal, and they just kept going at it. I mean, politics is like sausage being made. It is unsavory, and it always has been that way. But we usually end up where we need to be. But if everybody's watching, you know, all the backroom discussions and the deals, you know, then people get a little nervous, to say the least. So you need both a public and a private politics. And finally, I think I believe in evidence-based decision-making. I want to know what the facts are. I mean, it's like when you guys go into some kind of a deal, you know. Are you going to do that development or not? Are you going to do that renovation or not? You know, you look at the numbers. You try to figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work. Yeah. Uh-huh. So what the body of it, the main thrust of it is know the truth and act on it. Mm-hmm. But she's also saying sometimes when you're dealing with different groups, you have to tell slightly different stories to different people to get them to do things. Now, there are some reviewers have criticized the film for exaggerating Lincoln's exaggerating his deceptiveness, although it does seem to be the case that he denied that he had sent anybody to negotiate with the Confederacy by saying he hadn't sent anybody to Charleston when, in fact, he had sent them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of fudging. So that was, in a way, pretty important. I mean, he was really covering up exactly what he was prepared to do. But if you want to succeed in politics, you can't just open your heart. And, you know, Jimmy Carter, I think, was probably the biggest truth-telling president we ever had. And it was just a catastrophe. Yeah. When he said, uh, you know, he's asked by Playboy if he ever committed adultery, but he said he committed it in his heart. Well, that's somebody who knows the Bible by heart would recognize it as just a measure of human lust and that it's automatic. But that was a stupid thing to say. Exactly. Why not just say, not as you would define it, no. Just no would have been better. Yeah. Well, so this gets at something that, talk about nuance of lying some people would say well if you're not telling the whole truth if you're covering up that's lying so if you're telling one story to one person and then conveniently leaving out parts of the story to another person um, that's lying that's conniving that's underhanded but in fact it is really crucial at times that that happened because there's a bigger 
a larger truth in a sense that you are trying to tell, you're trying to get people to. So this passing the 13th Amendment uh, being critically important as the overriding issue really necessitates that you do not tell the entire truth to both sides. Right. You try to get everybody to move in a direction. It's sort of the art of persuasion, really. And we'll talk a little bit more about persuasion versus propaganda a little bit later, too. Another good example of that is the obsession that conservatives have had for some time with the national debt and the deficit, and often confusing one with the other, but we won't go into that right now. Yeah. At any rate, it was so crucial that our poor grandchildren who are going to have to pay for these awful, awful expenditures where the government has just gotten completely out of control and we just can't afford it. Of course, the reason we couldn't afford it was that George Bush had, one, cut taxes, and two, got us into a couple of expensive wars, which they conveniently didn't say. All of a sudden, we have a, a Republican majority that can do whatever it wants, and they're not saying word one about the deficit. They want more tax cuts and they want to slash government. And that's coming out to be their real concern. All along, that stuff about the terrible, terrible deficit was just baloney. Well, sure, yeah. And the deficit and government debt are only ever used as hammers when you are trying to discuss whether Medicare can be funded or whether a social program can be funded. Fortunately, our police and fire departments tend to escape that, and our road services generally tend to escape that. But when it comes to people's lives <laughs> and uh, actual survival, that's the bludgeon they use. The complexity of uh, Clinton's argument completely escaped Trump, of course. He's not a complex thinker. So his response was, now she's blaming the lie on the late, great Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> honest Abe, honest Abe never lied, the Republican nominee said. That's the big difference between Abraham Lincoln and you. That's a big, big difference. That's some difference. <laughs> <sighs> Is there a term in rhetoric where you just keep repeating the same stupid words over and over again? Let's uh, talk about a usage term here. Let's detour and actually talk about something that has to do with the topic of this podcast. Um, Abraham Lincoln died more than 100 years ago, more than 150 years ago, right? It's been a long time since Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Can we still call him the late, great Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> Is that something we say? I mean, when you say the word late, doesn't that imply that the person has died within someone's recent memory? Well, this goes right along with Trump thinking that Frederick Douglass is still alive. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln's could be late, I guess. <laughs> okay, maybe in his mind, all right. The lesson to draw from all of this is that in politics, unfortunately, complexity and subtlety are always bulldozed by simplicity and bluntness. And that is a real problem because many of the things that we need to do to just keep our planet healthy, to make the nation prosper, to give people freedom and so on, are complex and they're not simple. And the, the appeal to simplicity of just telling, quote, the truth in a few words and then just repeating it over and over is really deadly to the intelligent solution of these problems. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's true. And that goes back to what you were saying about um, Carter. 
not only was he generally much more truthful than other presidents, but he also really wanted to explain things with a certain amount of complexity. And this is one of the great differences between um, another president who is generally truthful, Obama, who was also politically much more astute in that he was much more prone to reaching for the platitudes than Carter ever was. Well, he could use inspiring language. Yes. He did try to explain things sometimes, but a lot of people have said he never explained the Affordable Care Act as clearly as he ought to have. And that was because it was so toxic. The immediate reactions that the opponents had managed to generate against it just insulated them against any kind of explanation. And so there was just this tendency to say, but look at these people who are doing so much better now because of this. Mm hmm. There was not enough really detailed discussion of it. You know, another president who was famous for being overly explanatory and complex in what he had to say was Clinton. Mm -hmm. um, but Clinton had this way of being charming <laughs> about it. Yeah. And even when he was in deep waters uh, using all kinds of inside baseball terms and, and going over details of things, his tone was one of excitement. It wasn't dry. Now, he could also lie, as in the most famous instant being, I did not have sex with that woman. Boy, that was a whopper. <laughs> yes. And from that, we learned that a whole generation believed that oral sex wasn't sex. Uh, yeah. Clinton had tapped into that idea. You know, you called to my attention that this idea that politicians need to lie could be traced back partly to Machiavelli. His famous book, The Prince. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of argument by scholars over whether did Machiavelli really mean this? He said that you should behave in the way that the prince describes, or was he satirizing? It's hard to say. It's difficult to know his motivations. I think he was probably something like an internet troll. Today, he was poking people to get a reaction out of them and thinking, well, this makes sense. Why not say it and watch people go, yikes? Yeah. Well, you know, whether he means it or not, whether he was being really straightforward and saying, look, this is how politics works and I want you to employ these tactics, or whether he's being satirical saying, oh, you know, standing back. I don't think it matters too much. The fact is that he wrote this work. And as we read it, we tend to think, boy, that's true. That really is how things work. It's a book that every politician has to reject and denounce and that all seem to study and follow quite carefully. Yeah. Why don't you uh, read the passages that you pointed out to me? I have a couple of ones that I think are worth bringing into the discussion now. So uh, the first one from Machiavelli goes like this. Everyone admits how praiseworthy it is in a prince to keep his word and to behave with integrity rather than cunning. Nevertheless, our experience has been that those princes who have done great things have considered keeping their word of little account and have known how to beguile men's minds by shrewdness and cunning. In the end, these princes have overcome those who have relied on keeping their word. All right, That's one Machiavelli quote that I think we need to keep in the background of this discussion. And the other one goes like this. Occasionally words must serve to veil the facts, 
But let this happen in such a way that no one become aware of it, or if it should be noticed, excuses must be at hand to be produced immediately. Yeah, so these are typical Machiavellian thoughts. This is from his chapter on the art of lying. Right. <laughs> and uh, I think we need to inject that into this conversation because uh, it does kind of point back to what we were intimating about the Lincoln and Hillary Clinton discussion. This idea that you have to behave with integrity and everybody needs to believe you're behaving with integrity, but you still need to employ a certain amount of cunning. And, of course, the person that most people cite when they're talking about the history of political lying is Goebbels. Oh, yeah. So um, this actually uh, was inspired by something that Hitler had written back in Mein Kampf in 1925. And he was claiming that the Jews had been deceiving everyone. And he says that the Jews had used a big lie to blame the loss of World War One on German General Erich Ludendorff, who was a nationalist and an anti-Semite. Hitler did not invent German anti-Semitism. He tapped into a deep well of it, which was already around. So he said he couldn't believe that anyone could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. So he creates this idea of the big lie as something that his enemies do. Yeah. Similarly, when Joseph Goebbels is the minister of propaganda for the Nazis. The minister of propaganda? Yeah. They actually had a department that was called the propaganda ministry? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he wrote in an article... Um, characterizing the English, the article was uh, a critique of what he called Churchill's lie factory. The English follow the principle that when one lies, one should lie big and stick to it. He doesn't appear to have said, if you repeat a lie often enough, people will believe it, and you will even come to believe it yourself. But you could find that in a psychological profile of Hitler that was done by U.S. agents. And it's gotten all kind of mashed together, saying that Goebbels believed in the big lie. And it gets quoted in various ways, sometimes fairly close to what Goebbels was saying, saying Goebbels let slip the truth that he believed that the big lie was effective, even when it was used by his enemies and so on. So anyway, it became very much associated with his name. It was also used in a report prepared during the war by the U.S. Office of Strategic Services to describe Hitler. Quote, his primary rules were never allow the public to cool off, never admit a fault or wrong, never concede that there may be some good in your enemy, never leave room for alternatives, never accept blame, Concentrate on one enemy at a time and blame him for everything that goes wrong. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. That's a really interesting quote. And with that quote, Paul, I want to pick this up next time. This is really going to be two episodes, I think, about the word lies and other things. But let's just wrap this up for this week and pick it up right there talking about Hitler's psychological profile as characterized by the United States. Thank you, Paul. All right. So long. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. 
The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening.